pretty it is. Um, some reason my mind is on the weather. I don't know what it is. Um, and unfortunately, I, I feel like I almost have to apologize this morning because of our unscheduled departure from Luke. Uh, so please turn to your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17 and just kind of keep it there. Maybe keep a finger as well in James chapter 5 as I take a few minutes to explain. Uh, if you were in the men's study with us on Wednesday evening, you noticed I was already gr- uh, growing at that time a little bit agitated with the forecast of a hurricane, uh, one that at that time we thought would affect Sunday service. Um, Reports suggested we would most likely be looking at tropical storm force winds at this time, the initial reports. So Pastor Weiler and I already discussed alternative plans. Uh, it is, is it appropriate, we're asking, to ask people to get out on the road in tropical storm force winds. Along with that, we already know that you don't put up shutters in tropical storm forced winds. Anthony Alberino and I tried that a couple of years ago, and uh, balancing on a couple extension ladders with a 4x8 sheet of plywood in high winds is not a good thing to do. Also, uh, you can't do that when the wind is howling, so Sunday was out for putting up shutters, and for those who are unable to physically put up their own shutters, or people who need help or don't have resources uh, we don't have family around or ability to do it. We normally try to get a team or two together to go around and help people put their shutters up. So depending upon how many homes uh, we have, that can take a couple days. Uh, by the way, I just want to take a moment just to shout out to the guys who went out and helped folks with their shutters to get them together. Yeah, It's not an easy job, multiple homes repeatedly. And uh, Pastor Weiler and the men got needed uh, done what was needed to be done, and, and great practice, guys. Now, if this misses us, you can take them all down. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Where's Vanna? You remember Gene, right? Gene went up and did a circle and came right in about 2004. So, um, and, and, of course, the cone is still, we're still within the cone, I think, as of this morning. So we don't know what it will do. I tell you, you look at the weather, and, and they're really good at observing what is happening. They can say we've got a high pressure over here over the United States. They've got a high pressure over here over the Atlantic. And then a hurricane coming up. And they can observe that from satellites, right? And they can tell what it looks like. They can measure wind speeds by dropping stuff into the hurricane. They still can't tell you what these things are going to do. All of our technology, God, is so much bigger than anything we have. We're so finite. Uh, so Wednesday thinking that was going to be a rough weekend. I was anxious about getting a couple crews organized and in order. Gerald was doing a great job with that. I, I normally like to go out with them. Unfortunately, the townhome that Rita and I recently bought or purchased didn't have any shutters. It never had any shutters. Had no anchors for shutters. So uh, I spent better part of the end of the week trying to get my own place in order. Had to measure out and drill and get the hammer drill and all that ridiculous stuff. Uh, thankfully, you only have to do it once. But I, I wasn't a real happy camper Wednesday. Just looking ahead. And then I'm supposed to do jury duty this coming week. And I'm like... Eh. With the forecast at that time, I informed Gerald, you know, I'm not going to have 
just the disposition to focus on Luke 16, 18 and Christian divorce uh, and remarriage in those scenarios. That it just takes a lot of time to flush that out and combine that with the fact we didn't even know if we'd be here. So, so we just kind of readjusted on things. I'm very thankful we're here. I'm so thankful we're here this morning. Um, the Trachadorian has changed. The storm has slowed. And uh, we've had the time we've needed to prepare if things get worse. Um, so what does a preacher do? What does a pastor do? What does he preach on when he hasn't had a lot of time to prepare? Uh, well, nor- first, normally, he turns to a passage that he's somewhat familiar with. A passage that he has researched previously, that he's, he's done research on before. And there are not, honestly, not very many truly good extemporaneous preachers out there. People who can preach uh, impromptu. Actually, I would suggest as far as completely extemporaneous, there are none. You know, that's what always gets politicians in trouble. No matter what side they're on, they just speak what's on their mind and look what happens so much of the time if they're not prepared. Uh, Extemporaneous means done without preparation. Gifted preachers do not preach completely impromptu. You know, there are always long periods of studies involved behind a good and solid doctrinal message. The Apostle Paul told the Bereans to search the Scriptures to see if what I have told you is so. So what does that imply? It implies that Paul was speaking and preaching to them the Scriptures. That was always his topic. So they could go and verify what he was saying to them. He, he was familiar with the Scriptures. Originally trained in the ranks of the Pharisees, it was quite likely that he had to memorize large portions of Scripture in the Old Testament in order to be a Pharisee. Every pastor, every pastor that preaches, has a reservoir. Has a reservoir of research from past study in which to dip. There are some that are extremely gifted with past research and a brilliant memory. That's not me. But all responsible pastors study diligently. It's commanded to be a workman approved, studying diligently. And all good ones come up with their own original material. They don't just copy other people's stuff. Uh, I've read multiple sources that reveal John MacArthur, who is just absolutely one of the best preachers out there today, puts in about 30 to 32 hours of sermon preparation for every sermon. No wonder he does so well. I've read Charles Swindoll's method of preparation, and he normally focuses on a single sermon each week. What he tries to do if he isn't called out of town for special preaching, he does one at a time. He starts on Monday morning, and uh, he begins his research for that following Sunday. Alistair Begg, he scripts his entire message. I don't know if you knew that or not. Uh, He scripts the entire message. He doesn't hold himself tightly to it when he gets in the pulpit, but he has always said, I never go into the pulpit not knowing what I'm going to say. It's Alistair Begg. One of the greatest preachers ever was Charles Spurgeon. In London, he was a preacher uh, of years ago. Some claim he never decided what he was going to preach on until Sunday morning. There is partial truth to that. 
but he was also one of the most diligent of students of the Bible and, and had a massive research library. Uh, you could go on to Google and find pictures of his library. Wait, I've saved you the time. Do we have one? Can you, can you see that? For that age and the amount of printed theological resources they had, um, he was a very diligent student of the Bible. And uh, so in his biography, I've read that on Saturday evenings, this was his typical mode of preparation. In preparation for Sunday morning, he would usually have somebody else read sections of Scripture to him the evening before as he would meditate at the hearing of Scripture. And so, so the reason Spurgeon uh, had a fire in the pulpit on Sunday morning, and he did, you can read some of his work, uh, it isn't because he didn't study and prepare. It was because he had an amazing mind that could draw out of that reservoir that he had and, and lay it out there, prepared yet unscripted. Um, still a lot, uh, all of these godly men, all of these godly men I've mentioned uh, they offer examples of being entirely reliant on the Holy Spirit. Every pastor knows that no matter how hard you study or how diligently uh, you search the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit has to be our teacher. And it has to open hearts for people to, to get the meaning of what Scripture is saying, regardless of the method of preparation. Of, of, yeah, preparation. By comparison, some of the worst sermons that I've heard in my lifetime are impromptu babbling. So I hope to avoid that this morning. Uh, men who think that it is just spirit-filled to, to just get up and say whatever is on your mind, uh, that isn't what we see in Scripture. Uh, we are to be prepared and do our research. So, usually a preacher who has to get something together in short order has to do something he has researched previously. Secondly, what topic does he preach on? And usually the preaching venue and his environment tend to dictate or have something to do with that choice. I would say today, how about the weather? Is that all right if we talk about the weather? Um, I, would, I had already been ruminating on, on the weather and what God was trying to teach us in our preparations, and uh, as we know, he is in sovereign control, and he has purposes, as he does this morning in Freeport, whatever is happening there, uh, God has purposes. And I was ta- thinking to myself about this, when Russell Lauks called me, and uh, he, he set this sermon in motion yesterday, so you can blame him, he, he had seen Facebook posts where people were boldly proposing that God had had stopped the westerly advance of Dorian because of the veracity of their prayers, because of how effective they were at praying. Essentially then, they stopped the storm. God was just the instrument that they used to stop the form, uh, the storm. So Russell, he, he sent some red flags with that. And he's here with me, he's like, you know, you just see everything out on the internet today. And uh, sensors started going off, and he's sharing this with me. And he's a very discerning young man. And uh, we hear this kind of stuff more and more often today. I've heard uh, uh, Ken and Gloria Copeland, if you're familiar with them, um, out in Texas. uh, They have a, a ministry. And I've heard 
Gloria say that Ken can rebuke a storm and stop its advance? So the, but he won't fly into it, yes. He's one of these guys who has two or three jets of his own, you know, and if he needs to take off and there's a storm, he can probably just stop it. Um, so the question arises, is God in sovereign control all the time? Is he in full control of the weather, or is Kenneth Copeland in control of the weather. Think about that just for a minute. Does God turn the, this storm called Dorian wherever he so wills? Say yes. God does. The other option, this is why it's so important, the other option is a God who is an indecisive and bewildered deity who, who's wobbling around out there somewhere, you know, just waiting for us to push him and his storm one direction or another. That's the other option. I, w- I would write down, I did in my, in my manuscript here, uh, that God is one with a little g at the front. That's a God. That's not our God. Um, a God who is manipulated or directed or redirected by our prayers is not a God of the Bible. Not a God of the Bible. Do we actually have control of the storm? Can we, through our prayers, direct the storm's path? Please say no. Because if we actually can, that means the future is in our hands. We control the future. Uh, Is God beholden to our prayers? Must he respond? Some theologies would suggest he is. Is he just waiting? Is he watching? Hanging around... Uh, up there for us to fill his suggestion box so he can finally decide apparently what he should do you know it is it is funny and we can laugh but it's such a common error today that is tragic very very tragic because it does not portray God as he is it, it portrays an image of God that is inaccurate. Um, we need to determine as Christians which God we bow down to and worship. And uh, it will be well with our soul regardless of the circumstances. Christians worship a sovereign creator of the universe. He, he holds the future in his hands. He is the one who turns hearts wherever he wishes as we are but clay in the potter's hands. This is very important. Very important. God is not our puppet on strings. And we do not control our future or the weather through positive thinking. And this would cause some to ask, you know, what about Elijah? What about him? You know, he controlled the rain. And he had a nature just like ours, right? And James chapter 5 is the passage that people most commonly refer to when suggesting that we can take charge, that we can really do this. I read it to you earlier. Um, I'll read, it, read part of it again, beginning in the second half of, chap- of verse 16. James chapter 5. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain 
and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. How do we handle that? Glad you asked. Um, now, a little bit of advice as we get rolling. Whenever you have a pastor or, or a pastor or a friend who reads this to you and suggests that this teaches that you too can t- control when it rains, step back and take a double take. Really, step back for a moment. I can control when it rains. Let that proposal really think in or sink in for a second. Through prayer, I can control the weather. Because that is what some suggest this passage teaches. Elijah controlled the rain. He had a nature like ours. So can you. So can you. It's preached very common on the circuits today, the YouTube circuits. You know, that would be really handy. If I could control when it rains, I'd be a farmer. That's what I would do. I can control when it doesn't rain and when it rains. Success. Now, the idea ought to supply us with a little bit of pause, but before you give your full buy-in, I could see someone saying now, you know what, maybe not just me, because I'm just little old John or little old Tammy or whoever it might be. Maybe not just me, but if I got a whole church together to buy into this deal, I bet all of us together through praying really hard could control the rain. If we prayed really hard together as a group, maybe we could control the rain. Let me just point out one minute detail of James chapter 5. The passage doesn't say Elijah and the combined influence of a whole slew of his friends praying. It says, just him. That means just you. Now, folks, that is making a whole lot out of yourself. Especially since we are nearing 8 billion people on the planet today. Imagine if everybody thought they were uh, controlling the weather. And it's going to be just you? You now have taken control. Now you are infinite and all-knowing where the storm should go. And you're, you're taking the power and control of everything. What have you just made yourself out to be? God. You know, that's quite a declaration considering that just a few paragraphs earlier in James, he writes that you can't even travel to a city and make a profit on your own volition. You can't travel here or there uh, next year and make a profit unless the Lord so wills you should make a profit. And then James writes that all such boasting that you're going to go and do something that's evil. It's presumption of what you can do in the future rather than submitting yourself to God's will. Um, But you're going to, via prayer, control God and the weather. That seemed a little presumptuous, a little dangerous, a little dangerous there. What is also bizarre is how most people today hinge the the efficacy or, or, or the success of prayer on a group thing. Let's circulate large petitions on the church website, or let's open up a, a, a prayer chain link, the longer 
the better. Not against prayer chains. Don't get me wrong here. Follow me. Um, or better yet, let's do a Facebook post. And you know, put a picture up. And if we get 10,000 likes, if we get 10,000 likes, then God will heal this child who's suffering of cancer. You ever seen those? They're, they're all over the place, amassing likes. That person, folks, is manipulating a photo of a very sick child to amass 10,000 likes to boost their advertising revenue on Facebook. That's what happens when they get 10,000 likes. They get more money. That's what that likes and shares thing is all about. It's advertising. Um, While that Facebook post surely isn't going to force God to heal anybody. God isn't beholden to what we do on Facebook. Uh, It's really bizarre as you get further and further along what's going on. And, And if it requires a certain number of prayer participants or likes to override the will of God... Um, It kind of makes you wonder how Christians changed the weather or got healed during the 1900 plus years before modern communications and the internet. How then did they amass tens of thousands of likes or a prayer chain with, with 500 people on it? Why did Hezekiah, you'd have to ask, King Hezekiah in the Old Testament, pray alone to be healed? When it had been announced by Isaiah the prophet to him that his life would be taken from him, his health would be taken and he would die, uh, he prayed alone, just him. And God answered affirmatively, yes, you will be healed 15 more years. Why did Paul the apostle pray only three times, and again, from what we can tell in Scripture, alone? Pray three times to have the thorn in his flesh removed and God decided to answer with that, no. My grace is sufficient for you. Neither of them pooled large numbers of people. Hezekiah the prophet uh, had the prophet Isaiah right there with him. He didn't even ask Isaiah to pray with him. Hezekiah just prayed to God. Second Kings, verse 20, or, uh, Second Kings chapter 20, you can find that. Maybe then, effective prayer doesn't hinge on a large pool of prayer partners. Maybe one person praying in harmony with a divine decree. Maybe that's enough. In harmony with the will of God. Maybe, just maybe, Elijah never controlled the rain. Look now to 1 Kings chapter 17. Or I believe you will find the answer to this perplexing question, really, um, hopefully enriching our prayer. It's vitally important whenever you observe the New Testament making an obscure reference to a historic Old Testament figure or event. Uh, Whenever you see that happen, go back and read the event. Go back to the reference of that person or that place or that event to find out what really happened in the Old Testament when you get a little snippet of it in the New Testament. And, And when it becomes really hard for you to believe that one person could control the weather, maybe there is a reason that it's hard for you to believe. And maybe it's worth the time to find out for real. Elijah was a righteous man. He was a righteous man, but he never controlled the rain. 
He didn't. You'll discover when reading the background of 1 Kings chapter 17, the context here is an escalating confrontation between Elijah and King Ahab and the evil prophets of Baal, right? That is the background, the, the confrontation on Mount Carmel. It, it is it's going to be coming up here in chapter 18. And I'm not going to read the whole two chapters to you. You can do that yourself. But in verse 1, Elijah is confronting King Ahab, saying, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word, says Elijah. Now Elijah is a, is a genuine prophet, right? So, so he speaks on behalf of God. That's what a genuine prophet does. He speaks the words of God. So God places his words in the mouth of the prophet. You follow me? He is a mouthpiece before scripture is fulfilled. The prophet is a mouthpiece giving the message of God. So, so those, uh, when you look at Elijah and what he says, at least in a declaration, whose words are they? God's. Are they Elijah's words? Yeah. But it's God's words that he has given to Elijah. Um, Elijah's word is God's word. Uh, we're going to find out in verse 2 where the rubber really meets the road. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward, given instructions, and hide yourself in the brook, brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. That's going to be a theme that we're going to see here continuous. Elijah went and did everything in harmony and with and according to the word of God that was given him. That makes, well, that makes Elijah a righteous man, doesn't it? He's a righteous man. He, he has aligned his human will with every divine decree that he hears. Do you follow me? It gets clearer. In verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, meaning Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs uh, to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So Elijah arose and went to Zarephath. Again, obeying. Uh, he remains obedient and completely in harmony with God's plan. The widow makes him lunch. She uses the last of her flour. We know this story. But in verse 14, Elijah tells her, For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. They were already in a drought. Who's going to be sending the rain, folks? God. The Lord has already told Elijah, the prophet, that he would send the rain. Verse 15. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. 
And she, she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Continues to come even clearer. Next, it's important to, to reference this, because I think it's important in, in, in our situation today that we pray. The widow's son turns ill, and he dies. Elijah offers a prayer, making a request of God. You know, if really in a similar manner that we might pray for, for a sick person in the hospital. This really uh, mimics how we might pray, Elijah's prayer here, or how we might pray uh, against some catastrophe happening if the Lord so, so wills. He says, O Lord my God, this is Elijah praying now, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. And in verse 22, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. Uh, that God heard means that the Lord affirmed the prayer. I mean, he was, a Lord affirmed that that was within God's divine will. That is what God wanted to happen. Um, and the life of the child returned. This is why we pray for things. Not only to remain in harmony with God's will, but because we don't know the final will of God in most human situations. It's the attitude of Jesus, not my will, but thine be done. Sometimes, as he did with Elijah here, sometimes as he did with Hezekiah, the answer is yes, according to God's divine will. Other times, as it was with the Apostle Paul in the thorn of the flesh, other times it's no. My grace is sufficient, but it's still God's will. It's always God's will. Sometimes it's not yet, but we always pray. Here, the divine decree was yes. And the widow says of Elijah in verse 24, this is awesome. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The word of the Lord is what was in his mouth. Now, what I want you to see as especially crucial to James chapter 5 is in 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Really crucial here. Now, it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Who's giving the commands? Who's giving the instructions? Who's obeying? So, so Elijah now knows it is God's will that it will rain. He's already been told. Uh, who do you think is going to harmonize himself with God's will through fervent, effective prayer. Probably the righteous man would do that, right? I'm going to pray in harmony with what God says he's going to do. Uh, of course, we know there next comes the confrontation between Elijah and the false prophets of Baal, telling them in verse 24, uh, Elijah says, you call on the name of your God, I will call on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that, that's a good idea. 
Elijah decides that prayer is a good idea, and they set up the wood and the sacrifices. You know the whole magnificent, magnificent, magnificent story there. Um, and in verse 36, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, note this is Elijah's prayer now, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it, uh, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And I have done all these things according to, or things at your word. None of this was Elijah's idea. None of it. He simply prays in harmony with God's will. Um, Elijah's prayer confirms that he had done how many things at the word of the Lord? Some things, a few things, all things he prayed and were, were according to God's revealed will, what God had shown him. And the fire fell, consumed the sacrifices, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And in verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a roar of a heavy shower. Verse 44, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And Elijah said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower, i.e. end of drought. Who determined it was going to rain? The Lord said he would send rain. That is verse 1. Uh, being a righteous man, how did Elijah respond? He prayed everything according to God's word, verse 36. And God ended the drought and sent the rain. All Elijah did was pray in harmony with what the revealed will of God is. Uh, he harmonized his prayers to God's desires. Therefore, his prayers, they availeth much. They always do when you're within God's will. Um, he didn't determine it was going to rain. It wasn't his call. It should go without saying. There are massive, massive differences between Elijah and us. Did God tell anyone here what direction Dorian is going? No. And not knowing what God is going to do, would we dare suggest our prayers here in Port St. Lucie are just a little more effective than those Christians who are sitting in Freeport right now? See the problem with bad doctrine? Or would a person dare to suggest they're a better Christian than Dorian's next stop on her itinerary, wherever that may be? God forbid, maybe the Carolinas somewhere, hopefully not anywhere. But would we say, well, we prayed harder, we're just better Christians because the storm went there. Or do you suppose those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell were greater sinners than all the rest? Jesus said, no. No. And the Christians in PSL playing uh, prayer hockey with Dorian, thinking they're knocking it around. And every other East Coast city is doing the same thing thinking that they're knocking it around 
um, to see which one has the most effective fervent prayer slap shot? To see who wins? No. Is Hurricane Dorian our hockey puck that we control? No. No. Unlike Elijah, we don't know God's will on this one. We don't know. We, we, we cry for his mercy. We pray that he's, we're in his will. If it ends up that we lose, how many daughters did Horatio Spafford? Three daughters he lost on that ship. He said, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Um, according to God's will and according to his purposes and for his glory, he has a predetermined path for this storm. And as Job confessed to the Lord in Job 42, verse 2, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. None. Um, What then can we pray? What can we pray that is in harmony with the will of God in Scripture? We can pray to be compassionate. We know that is God's will. Um, we, We can pray that God would give us a servant's heart a heart even like Elijah, to love our neighbors, to help them prepare for the storm, to give their encouragement, that is the will of God. We can, we can do that. We can pray those things. Uh, we can pray that we'll have opportunities to share the gospel through all of this because we know that is the will of God. Follow me? Getting on board with what God has said he is doing. Uh, we can pray for these things and know that God will answer affirmatively. He's for these things. Um, that's one, re- one of the reasons why in, the, in the, the weekly newsletter that we send out, the prayer letter by email, I draw attention to the last five weeks of sermons where we have learned God's will. It is the will of God. Or we know this is God's will, and we know that we can pray according to these things, and that is what a righteous man would do. You know, Christians, we're not open theists. That means that, you know, anything could happen in the future, that he changes his mind in the face of unseen circumstances brought about by his creatures. That's what open theism suggests. No, we do not suggest the future is open or that God is not in full control. That idea can't be reconciled to Scripture. As we close, we're coming up on the Lord's Supper. What then is the reason? What is the reason that James invokes the story of Elijah in James chapter 5? Why did James reference him in the context of answered prayer? Don't lose sight of that. Let's return to James chapter 5 really quickly. James is, in verse 14, referencing someone who had fallen ill, I suggest to unrelenting and unconfessed sin against the body of Christ, against their church. This was not that uncommon, by the way, in the early church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for taking the Lord's Supper, that is the love feast, in small privileged groups. Sectarianism had drifted in. Uh, while they were excluding others, from the Lord's Supper. Some were going hungry while others were getting drunk. You're familiar with that passage. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 22, Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? 
And they were falling ill in Corinth due to these sins against the church, sinning against the church. Verse 30, For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, meaning a number have died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. See, it's the Lord's discipline. So that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, speaking of the Lord's Supper, wait for one another. It means we do it together. If, another, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. It seems most logical in James chapter 5, verse 14. It is describing someone who fell ill due to sins against the church. And in the given scenario, God had revealed to his or her heart the cause of their illness was their sinning against the church. That is the reason they are to call for the elders to come and pray. See, it is a sick person's desire to call for the elders to come and pray because they want to be restored to fellowship. Anointing oil then serves as it did in ancient Israel as they would anoint kings. It's a form of identification. It's symbolic of identification with the church and a prayerful restoration to the body of Christ. It's not a magical oil in that. It's not a magical elixir. Really, if you're really sick in the hospital... Do you want Pastor Weiler and myself to come up and rub you down with oil? You really don't. It's not a magical elixir in James chapter 5. It is an identification for someone needing to be anointed and identified again with the church. They've been separated from fellowship because of their sin and now they're sick because of it. Anointing oil is an identification. As we know, Samuel anointed uh, king David as king means he identified him as king. Um, in James 5, verse 15 then, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, here's the therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. It's a sin problem, this particular sickness. And that says, an effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. In James, what, what has God promised to the person who's fallen physically ill due to sin and causing division in the church? To that person, if you confess your sins, you'll be healed. You'll be restored. That is the revealed will of God. And just as Elijah uh, prayed in harmony with God's will and God answered affirmatively, God assures you, if this was the cause of your sickness, that your prayer to be restored will be answered affirmatively. I'm going to call the men forward to distribute the Lord's Supper. 